0: Well, as always, it is a pleasure to be able to stand in this pulpit this Lord's Day and be able to open up the Bible back to Philippians, right? This, this book we've been in for some time, and as I mentioned last week, we're, we're quickly getting to the end, right? We're entering into the last chapter this morning, chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 this morning, which will be on page 982, if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles around the room. And as a reminder, Philippians, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, is, it's written as a pastor is writing back to basically someone who's deeply important to him, right? This church in Philippi was one of the very first churches that the Apostle Paul helped plant, one of the very first times that he saw God just move in a miraculous way and save sinners like you and I. And he's been writing to them, this is about 10 years after that church got started, he's writing to them to encourage them in their walk with Christ. Right? And how are they to follow Christ now? Which is important for all of us to take note. Especially right? if you are a Christian this morning, say that you are a follower of Christ, how do you do that? How do you follow him? How do you grow in your faith? And if you're not a Christian this morning... Right? Or maybe not quite sure where you're at. One is you're welcome here. And it's actually really good for you to be here. Because you're able to, to see why do Christians do the things they do? What drives them? Right? Do they try to do something in order for God to basically return the favor? Or do Christians do what they do because of what God has already done for them? An important distinction that Paul has been making over and over again. And as a reminder... What, is it to mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? Right? What does it mean to be a follower? How does that even begin to happen in your life? Well, if you're anything like me and anything that's out with the, the Bible records and really articulates for us, is there, there came a time, maybe when you were early, young in age, maybe older in age, that you understood that Jesus was not just some guy who came and lived thousands of years ago. Wasn't just a guy that happened to die an unjustly death at the hands of the Roman executioners. But rather, Jesus was the God man, one that came down from heaven, one in whom we're gonna celebrate that first coming in Advent in just a, few, a matter of a few weeks. But Jesus came and not only just lived a life that nobody else had ever lived. But the death that he died was not just unjust, but it was the most unjust death in the whole world. Because Jesus died without any sin. He never sinned. He was perfect. Absolutely perfect in word, in deed, or thought. Which is unlike every single one of us in the room this morning. And here's why that's good news, though, church. The reason why Jesus did die, though, the reason why he said, I am going to lay down my life... Is because he was laying it down on our account. He was taking the penalty for us. He was atoning for our sins, not his sins, but our sins. So Jesus lived a life we couldn't live. And so you're a Christian today is because you have come to an understanding that you needed that salvation. That you realize that you trying to be God, you trying to do things your way has resulted in a life of sin, a life of idolatry, a life of heartache, realize that you could not be this perfect person in which you know the most perfect and the holy righteous God requires. So you turned from your sins. You trusted in that Savior. You believe that what Jesus did on the cross counted for you. Now, I'm fully aware that you might be thinking this moment, Luke, you say this every single Sunday, right? Do you have any other songs? I don't. The church has one song. That we sing over and over again is because that's the song of salvation. That we need to be reminded of who we are coming to worship and why he deserves that. And I'll I'll be honest, the reason that that I'm so convinced that this message, this good news that needs to be heralded every single Sunday is because any time you open up the Bible, you see the good news heralded. And so even walking through this letter in the book of Philippians, we've seen over and over again, what is Paul doing? Reminding Christians of the gospel. Reminding them of who Christ is. Reminding them of what he's done. Along the way, he's been, he's been adding to that, right? He's been saying, and because of that, now go do this. But don't you dare forget why you're doing it. And I believe that's really what, Jesus, or what Paul is going to continue to do today. Is reminding us this joy that we have in Christ. And it's just as much from God as our salvation is. And we need to take heart and remember that. And so as we walk through Philippians 1 through 9. Or chapter 4 verses 1 through 9 this morning. Here's what I want you to see. Is Paul saying this is the way that you will observe that gospel. That good news finally taking root in your heart. You may have believed it. A long time ago. But God in his mercy has been renewing your mind, right? Has been shaping your heart to actually live out that gospel in which you have believed. To actually follow that savior in which you have entrusted your life to. And specifically, he's going to lay out five ways that he tells every single Christian to stand firm in the Lord. And that's what we're going to walk through. But let's go ahead and stop there before I actually read the text will you guys please pray for me in the preaching of God's word as I pray for you in the receiving of it? Let's go ahead and pray together. Well, Father, I thank you. i thankful that you are a God who has revealed yourself through your word. And although we can look at some beautiful things in creation, we can admire the rain that we're receiving this morning, we can look upon the mountains and go how majestic and glorious they are, nothing is more glorious, though, than actually knowing you. So thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to even just know how, does, how do you, Lord, actually impact our day-to-day lives? That's what this text is about, Jesus. That's what you've given us in your word. So God, I pray that each man and woman, uh, child in this room and in the room next door with those kids, that we would all know more about Christ this morning. That our minds would be renewed in you. And that we would be able to walk out of here, Jesus, just knowing and loving you far more than when we first walked in. And we need your help for that. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let me read the first nine verses for us. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we're thankful for God's word. All right, if you could go ahead and look back at verse one. We're just going to walk through this just line by line because I think what Paul is trying to do in these nine verses is really to create that whole framework, that whole foundation to how we actually live the Christian life. But he starts with just reminding them something personally. He reminds them of how he feels about them. He says, therefore, my brothers, distinguishing who is Paul talking to? He's talking to Christians, right? Brothers and sisters in the faith. He's reminding them. Paul talks to non-Christians all the time in other letters. But this one in particular, he's zoning in on the Christian and says, I need you, brother, to know something. I want to remind and encourage you about something. And and look at the way that he just basically describes how he feels about this church once again. He says, whom I love and long for, my joy in my crown. And he calls them my beloved. My beloved. See, Paul reminds this church of how much they mean to him. And it wasn't from a hey, everything is going great. It's not a, hey, everything is is fine, so why don't we just celebrate what's good and go home? Remember, Paul is where at this moment? Where is he writing this letter? In prison, right? He's sitting in prison for doing what? For preaching the gospel, for telling people about Christ. And he's saying, it's all been worth it. Because look at what has come in you. Look at what has started in Philippi. Because of the preaching of God's word. Remember, he's already reminded this church that he's okay with whatever happens to him. Paul knows that his days are likely numbered. He knows that he will likely die, be executed for preaching the gospel, for teaching the Bible, which ultimately will happen. But he has told us to live as Christ and to die as what? To gain. And he calls this church his crown. Like an athlete's a medal. As a reward for the work that has been taking place through him. You see, Paul viewed the church. He viewed the local church as something so precious that he would say, it's my crown. It's so important to me. It's almost as if Jesus died so we could have it. Which is exactly true. The reason why, church, we can gather as a family this morning is because Jesus went to the cross. The church is not an afterthought. It's not just a bunch of Christians saying, hey, we, we should just get together and, and do something to remember this. In fact, one of other places, and Paul says that Jesus died for the church, being made up of individual sinners like you and I. And he died so we could be family and Paul's not being naive about this, right? He knows the struggle. He knows the, the difficulties that come with trying to follow Christ with other sinners. He knows well of that. He's been talking about that throughout this letter. But the church was not an afterthought. In fact, it was central to Paul in his walk with Christ. And we have to ask ourselves the same. It's like, Do we view the church in the same way? As a crown? As something we joy in? That we love? Not in a It's my Savior, but Jesus has died so I could have this, so I could be a part of this. And I believe it's it's this love and this encouragement that he's giving this church and calling him my beloved is the reason why he says in verse 1 to stand firm in the Lord. Because you care about those whom you love. right? You care about their well-being. You care about where they're going. You care about what happens to them. And that's why in verses 2 through 9, Paul's just basically listing out all the ways that he wants to encourage this church to live out. To basically stand firm in the Lord. Because there's no one else to stand firm in. It's not in Paul. He's in prison. He can't answer their prayer requests. He can't change their circumstances. But he knows the one who can. And so he says, stand firm in the Lord, Christian. And be reminded of those day-to-day realities of what that means. So I told you there's basically five things which I believe that Paul highlights. And we walk through those with you. The first one is that there's unity when we stand firm in the Lord. There's relational unity between Christians when you stand in the Lord. Look at verse 2. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, can you imagine this Sunday? By the way, right, they didn't have, everybody didn't have like a copy of Paul's letter. So basically the pastor would be standing up in front of this church in Philippi saying, hey, we received a letter from the apostle Paul. Let me read it for us this morning. And so he stands up and he is reading this letter, right? And probably everything is going good. They're feeling convicted. They're feeling encouraged, right? And it gets to chapter four, which they didn't have that at the moment. And all of a sudden, Paul names names again, and not in a good way, right? He says, I entreat Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, that might have been really awkward at that moment. I don't know if what, you know, the room size that they were meeting in, I imagine they probably weren't sitting right next to each other, though, in that moment, but they heard their names, not as, like, gospel encouragers, like, you know, Timothy or Epaphroditus, They heard their names, and all of a sudden their jaws dropped. I'm like, uh uh-oh. Did Paul say my name? Maybe even these two women made eye contact with each other going, he knows. He knows. Because something had been going on, right? We don't really know the circumstances. We don't really know what's going on. But something had happened between these two women. And it's been happening for some time then for Paul to actually know about it. And he's saying, your relationship, ladies, are affecting the church. Relational unity matters in the local church. It matters a whole lot. And so Paul is saying, you need to agree in the Lord. And in verse 3, he actually brings in this other person. We don't really know his name. It might be true companion, or it might just, that might be just a way that he describes him. But basically Paul says, hey, you need to get together with these people, With these two women and you guys, you need to come to an understanding of what is most important to you. Remember the work that you've been doing together. Remember the gospel and what you've been laboring side by side with. And agree in the Lord. Now, what is that all about? Sometimes it will happen in churches, and it happens all the time, that you will have disagreements on things, right? You will see things differently. But one of the most healthy aspects of walking with Christ is you can say, even with our differences, we have the same main purpose in mind. Our names are written in the book of life. We're going to be together for a long time. We better figure this out now. And so Paul says, you need to agree in the Lord, right? Go back to the main thing. Go back to your foundation. As I mentioned, we don't really know the circumstances behind this disagreement, And it was likely relational because if it was doctrinal, right, if it was something about what they were believing, Paul would have mentioned that because he does that in other places. He calls out doctrinal strife. He sets the record straight. So this was likely something that was non-primary but certainly affecting the church, which we should take great note in, that Paul, the Holy Spirit, God, cares about how we treat each other how we view each other on a day-to-day basis. And so he says, when you stand firm in the Lord, you can have relational unity with other people. Doesn't mean that those disagreements go away, doesn't mean that there's not maybe hard, awkward conversations to have, but you can have them because of Christ being your foundation. And if Paul fights for the unity in this church, how much more important is it to us for us to fight for unity in our church? Right? Think about the culture we live in. Think about our, where our country is at. Is there a call for unity? No, there's not. Right, we live in, a, in a, a time where everybody's telling us to divide, right, to disenfranchise, right, to malign, turn our backs on those who maybe don't agree with us on every single thing in this world. I think which is silly especially for Christians, especially for Christians. Because we have the greatest reason in the world to have unity, and that's because of the gospel. That all those things that maybe separate us or maybe things that we look at things differently, the main thing in our life, we're viewing the same. And that's Christ and his gospel. And so let's strive for that. Let's strive for that. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. We can have disagreements, but we can ultimately agree in who? In the Lord. That's part of standing firm, is knowing what's most important in your life. Number two, we see, looking at verse four, standing firm in the Lord brings a joy in the Lord. Look at verse four, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. So as we strive for unity in the Lord, we also remember our joy in him as well. And that's one of the main themes throughout this whole letter, right? Is this this concept of joy. And Paul has been beating that drum saying, do not let your circumstances be the overarching authority in your life. Don't let happiness or an emotion be your greatest God. That's what you're going after. He says, rejoice in who? In the Lord. So where does joy come from, church? It comes from him. It's through him. It's because he will not be shaken. He will not be dismayed. He cannot be anything but who he is. And Paul is saying this from where, again? From prison. He's not drinking a drink on the beaches of Greece. He's saying this in prison. Which is comforting for every single one of us. That no matter what happens to us, right? No matter what goes on in our life. No matter what difficulties we may face. How and when can we rejoice in the Lord? Now and always. Now and always. So he isn't saying just be happy. He's saying let your joy be rooted in something far greater than you. And here's where we have to fight against our temptation to put our joy in something else. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your career maybe it's your house maybe it's your spouse or a future spouse maybe it's your kids maybe it's an experience that you've been longing for paul's saying those aren't necessarily bad things but they cannot be where your joy comes from because those will change in fact if you try to put your joy in those church if you try to put that type of eternal joy amongst those those persons or those things, you're going to crush them because they were not designed to carry that weight. Only the one who is all-powerful and almighty was designed to be able to carry that weight. In church, in my short tenure as a pastor, I'll say I've, I've been around, by God's grace, up many different types of Christians in different places, both working in a big church up in Reno doing a lot of seminary education up in Seattle, being back down here in this valley for the last six years, I've, had to, I've been able to basically rub shoulders with a whole lot of Christians. And here's what I notice. Regardless of age, right, regardless of circumstances, the most mature Christians that I have come across in my time as a Christian are not those who have avoided suffering, are not those who have even been successful in their endeavors in this world. But the most mature Christians I've met are those who have this deep joy in the Lord no matter their circumstances and are being honest about their circumstances, saying, this is hard, this is difficult, and saying, but you know what? I worship a God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he has me in this season, it's not in vain. But it's so I get more of him. And they teach me this over and over again. They teach me that God is a better God than me. And that he can be trusted. Now what does that kind of posture then lead to? If that's the posture of a mature Christian to rejoice in the Lord always, what does that lead to? Well, look at verse 5. Where Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's that's the third point. We stand firm in the Lord by letting our reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. Now that word reasonableness can also be translated gentleness. It's also a good translation. And what Paul is saying that we are to then live this joy-filled life, this joy that's coming from the Lord, it results in a life where we respond with gentleness amongst others. Because we don't view ourselves as better than them. We don't view ourselves in a way that You know, I got it all together, and they don't. And so I treat them and malign them as if they are second class. But rather, we are to live with gentleness. Paul's not saying that means we're vanilla people, right? We don't have opinions, or we don't get flustered about things. But it means as we interact with people, both Christians and not, what are they going to remember? And I'll tell you this much. People do not remember competency as much as they remember character. People will always remember how you treated them rather than what you have said or done. Your character matters. And that's what Paul is saying. If you have joined the Lord, live that out. Live that out with other Christians. Live that out with non-Christians. Let your heart and your goal and your, your overarching point of life be known to them. It's really that gospel culture which we talk about Quite a bit here at Carson Dolly Bible Church. That we want to be a people that not just preach grace, right, and tell you that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then you also experience that in the hallways, in our homes, in our workplaces, that we don't just say it's by grace, but then we also then respond with grace, no matter the situation, or forgiveness, or empathy. Or gentleness, like we see here. And we do that. Why? Well, what's the end of verse 5 say? Look at it. Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Now, Paul could have been talking about that. He's given a clue that maybe the Lord's second coming was, was close by. And he was encouraging these Christians to be ready for that. Uh, That's one way of looking at it. I don't think that's what Paul is, is talking about in the way that he talks about the Lord being at hand in other parts of the Bible. I think what Paul's talking about is the reason why we do the things we do is because we live amidst the presence or amongst the communion with God at all times. That the Lord is at hand. And so one of the best ways to live a life firm in the Lord is by knowing that God is present that knowing that he has not abandoned you, that the things that you do, you do because you have communion with Christ, Christian. You don't don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to take on the struggles of this world and say, I have to figure this out because Jesus is coming soon. And say, no, I actually get to figure these things out because Jesus is near and he's never abandoned me. He has never left me nor forsaken me and what does this lead to? Look at verse 6. This is an absolutely amazing church. That because the Lord is at hand, that we can do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we can let your requests be made known to God. This is number four. We stand firm in the Lord and get a fight against anxiety. Anxiety. Do not be anxious about how many things, church? Anything. Anything. Now, I don't know if you guys write in your Bible, highlight in your Bibles. Some people do, some people don't. But if you are a highlighter, right, or if you are a note taker in your Bible, draw a big circle around verse 6. Because it's going to be one of the most important texts of Scripture for you to go back to over and over again as you walk with Christ. Because I don't know about you. Fully, but I know about myself that I can struggle with anxiety a lot, right? There can be things that can come into my life that just all of a sudden I feel like I'm incapable of, of doing anything about it. And it almost can shut you down as a person, right? I know for many of you, because you've told me this is something that you struggle with for much of your adult life. That it can even have happened since your childhood. You can remember being anxious as a fourth grader. Or a third grader. And so what do we do about that? Right? We live in a world that's one of the most medicated people in the entire world. And one of the main medications it's addressing is this idea of anxiety or depression. According to how we report it currently, we're the most anxious and depressed people the world has ever seen. In sheer number. So what do we do about that? I can tell you, there's there's ways that the world is handling that, and there's a way that God's people have always handled that. And what Paul is doing here, and this is why it's so important for us to take note, is he's saying, for as a Christian, there's a way for you to fight against this. There's a way for you to take on this. There's a way that you can step into your anxiety. And by the way, Paul is not trying to get into all the nuances of mental health in this passage. He's not trying to, you know give you an understanding of all the way that the brain chemistry works and why certain people are prone to anxiety or not. But what he's simply addressing is, I know that as a person that lives in a sinful world that you likely have anxiety. And so what do we do about that? He actually gives us a command. Go to somebody. Go to somebody with that anxiety. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't pretend it's not real. But go somewhere. And He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So who are we to go to? To him. Not ourselves. Right? Anxiety is often living life as if God doesn't exist anymore. And what Paul is saying the way that you fight against anxieties, you actually go to the one who's in control. Who actually does have the means to give you comfort which should be encouraging for us. As we think about anxiety, If we think about the things in our life that actually cause us to be anxious, right? I talked about last week, the things that we think about before we go to bed at night, the things that we think about when we wake up, what do we do with those? Paul's saying, go to the Lord, because I know, I know there's something you struggle with. And it's okay that it's present in your life. Jesus would talk about anxiety. Do you remember this? Jesus would talk about what we are to do to be anxious in Matthew 6. And actually, I want to read this for us this morning. It's going to be on page 811 if you want to turn there in your Bible. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. I do have a slide for that as well. Jesus knew that you'd be anxious. And this is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life, to his span of life? Verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So according to both Jesus and according to Paul. Anxiety is something that comes for us all. But what do we do then? What do we do when those, those thoughts infiltrate. And seem to demand our mind's attention. What do we do? Jesus says, seek the kingdom. Paul says, seek the kingdom. If you need a tangible example of that, look outside. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. They are announcing God's good and right providence in this world. And if he's taking care of them, he'll take care of you. So we seek the kingdom. We let our requests be made known to God. Prayer is an act of war against anxiety, church. It's saying, I will not let the things of this world be ultimate and be demanding, but I'm going to let the one who is act. It's an act of submission. It's an act of reverence, right? Isn't prayer simply saying, Lord, I can't do this, right? You don't pray about things that you think you can handle, but you pray about things that you can't handle. And Paul is saying, go to him with all things. Recognize him in all things, because anxiety grows when we stop remembering that God is in control, right? How true of that is us? You know, Martin Luther on this subject once said that we are to pray and let God worry. To pray and let God worry. Or R.C. Sproul, he used to famously say, there are no maverick molecules in the world. Meaning that there's not one thing in this world that God is not sovereign and in control of. And so if God is in control of even the tiniest thing. That he can be in control of whatever is going on in your life right now. But how do we do that? Right? How do you actually get to a place where you want to pray? right? That you want to seek the kingdom. That you don't want to have this anxiety dominate your life anymore. Well, that's where Paul goes. Starting in verse 8. And this is point number 5. That standing firm in the Lord brings upon the renewal of your mind. Verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. According to the word of God, our minds are an incredible aspect of our following of Christ. And we should know that. Because when Jesus told us what is the greatest thing that we could do in following him, what's the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Your mind is important to God. Which I find fascinating, right? Because... The Bible describes that when you become a Christian, that you are taken this heart of stone that you once had, and God places in you a heart of flesh, a new heart, a new core, a new identity, saying, this is who you are in me now, Christian. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We talks about your heart. But yet, when it comes to the mind, the Bible says we are to renew it. God does not give us a new mind, but he calls us to renew our mind. In fact, one of the other famous places in Romans 12, Paul talks about this. He says that we are transformed by the renewal of our mind. The mind is important for us as, as Christians to think about. And so Paul gives us some categories. How do we renew our mind? Right? What are ways that we are supposed to think in? What are those categories that we're actually supposed to step into? Well, think about the list that we have in verse 8. Verse 8. What is true? What is honorable? What is just? What is pure? What is lovely? What is commendable? These are the categories in which our renewal of our mind takes place in. Listen, I know as Westerners, right, and even as Americans... We don't like to think that our mind or how we think has been influenced by anyone or anything, right? We like to think that we are these, you know, autonomous individuals. We have our own minds. Nobody tells us how to think. But yet, what the Word of God says is, no, actually, you're very much influenced. The way you think has been influenced by what has been discipling you. And that's why Paul is saying, step into something new allow you to be discipled by something better than this world. But we should ask ourselves, what's been discipling us? Right? In what ways, what things have actually been shaping the way that we think? What have we been giving ourselves to? And this is hard because we don't like to think about what we think about. Right? We don't like to be in silence. We don't like to question why we think the way that we think. But yet, the Word of God is saying we must. This is part of you standing firm in the Lord, is knowing what are you being renewed in? What is comforting you? What are these categories? Instead of the world, maybe it's the kingdom. And I believe this is actually why we need community. This is why we need to be gathering as the people of God. Because the renewal of your mind does not happen in isolation, church. As much as we like it to happen in isolation, right? That we would just one week think this way and then the next week be able to think differently on certain issues. It's not how that happens. It happens in relationship. That's why we have to gather together. That's why we have to study together. That's why we have to pray together together. Because when we do that, we actually help each other renew our minds in these categories of what is pure, what is just, what is lovely. Being around other Christians help you think through those categories. I think it's why we need counseling. I think it's why we need mentoring. It's why Paul right, said, with this issue with these two ladies, saying, you need a third person to come in and help you think through this. Because you will not be able to do it on your own. How many of us have really good inner lawyers, right? I know, here's, here's me, a little bit of snap snapshot snap, of who I am. I have this great internal lawyer that when I think about something and I want to be right, I have this really good process inside of me that can convince me of whatever I want is the best thing in the moment. And nobody can tell me differently. I have a really good internal lawyer who wants to stand up and justify everything I say and do. But here's the truth, church, is I know that I'm not right all the time. I know that there's aspects of my thinking and my mind that need to be renewed. And God has actually given me a community and has given me people and relationships to help shape that for his glory and my good. Because I believe what... Paul would say earlier in this letter that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And know what way that he's going to be bringing that completion? It's through his people. But there's a reason why when Jesus said, I'll be back, he didn't say, now try to figure it out on your own, but he gave us the church. Right now, in the meantime, as we wait for him. And at the end of the day, church, if you were to look at those categories in verse 8, where do they find their end in? Right? Who's the ultimate end in all those categories? Who's ultimately lovely, ultimately honorable, commendable, pure? Jesus is, right? Paul is always trying to get us to our minds to think about him. Now, certainly, there's other aspects of those categories that we should think through. But where should they terminate? in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done that's why when we strive in this world when we strive to stand firm in the Lord where, are, where is our goal what are we trying to get to we're simply walking the path in which Jesus has laid out ahead of us the one that he's already finished and he's saying come to me I'm the end of the road because there's nobody better for you to get to than me and so churches, we end today looking at all those ways that we are to stand firm in the Lord, all the ways that Paul has been encouraging this church, we see at the end of the day, what we get is the peace from God that accompanies this. I have yet to meet a person that says, you know what, I think my peace is pretty good. I don't need anything better. Can you imagine the peace that comes from God? The one who's the creator of all. The one who knows all things. He does not struggle with anxiety. And what he's saying is that peace, that which God has, he'll give that to you, Christian, because he loves you. Because you're his. And like a good dad who wants the best for his kids, he's saying, come to me. Let me wrap my arms around you. Let my peace be what you are able to walk the rest of your life out in. I need it. Maybe I'm the only one, but I need it. So let's rejoice in him, church. In all things, in all places. And if you're not a Christian, right? Maybe you're just not quite sure where you're at or you feel like this anxiety has been taking you over for years, decades, maybe your whole life. It might be because you've never actually gone to the King of Kings and saying, I need you to be God and not me. Maybe you've done that before and you simply need to do it again. Saying, Jesus, I need you to be king of my life. I'm a pretty bad one. I need you. So church, let's go in prayer and just end our time by asking God to do this very thing. Well, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for being a God who has not left us um, in this, this anxiety or relational strife or even with a mind that is not capable of growing in you. God, all of these things that we are able to do by standing firm in you are given by you. And so God, I pray as we end our time in that word that we'd walk out of here encouraged, maybe repentant of ways that we have not been doing these things, that we've been holding on, we've been praying to ourselves rather than to you. And God, we thank you that the God of peace, you, promises to be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.